This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day one. So Kayleen's going to be talking. Hello. Hello. Hi, Steve. How are you? Very well. Now, you're going to be talking to us about sociolinguistics. Yes, yes, and, I am. And related issues. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Over to you. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks for having me today. So my name's Kaylee, and I'm a UX researcher. I'm speaking to you today from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. The use of language, spoken, signed, gestured or written, unites us all as human beings. Beyond being a way to communicate, language can influence the way we think, talk and behave. This talk will explore the intersection of sociolinguistics, that is, how and why we talk the way we do, and design research, and how applying core concepts in sociolinguistics can improve the way we conduct our research. Have you ever thought about how the way you sound and the words you use might influence research participants' responses during testing? What about whether our experiences and the way we speak and those of our research participants influence the collection of research data? And looking inward, have you thought about how we as a design research community talk about what we do and how we might exclude others through the language we use? Okay, I'm going to go into a bit about me and why this topic. I've never really known what I wanted to do. I suggested to my careers counsellor in high school, way back when, that I go on to study anthropology because I'd always had an interest in humans, history and biology. He replied, what will you do for a real job? We got along well, so this was fine. I chose to study Japanese, Mandarin and linguistics, thinking I wanted to be an interpreter. I then studied a Master of Business in Banking and Finance, thinking the combination of Asian language stuff and money stuff might be useful to someone somewhere. This landed me a graduate position at NAB. I rotated through what was then the human-centered design team and I was hooked. It made so much sense to conduct research with the people you're building things for. I remained at NAB for a few more years as a researcher and then I landed at SEEK. Having worked at two large corporates now, I'm always surprised by three things. The people who design products and services for all Australians don't always learn how to communicate to all Australians. And there's an assumption that the people who use the things we make speak the same way we do. And there's a lack of focus of what it's the language used in research, as well as product and service designs. My background and these three things gave me the idea for this talk. So before we get stuck in, I want to run through some definitions. Linguistics is the study of language. It's not studying languages per se, although that does help to describe the things you see, but it's studying how language is acquired and how it's used, among other things. And it's a really big field. Here's just a few different branches of it. There's language acquisition, which is how humans learn first and additional languages. There's historical linguistics, which is language change over time. There's phonetics and phonology, which is sounds and how we make them. And finally, the one we've all been waiting for, sociolinguistics, which is the study of how people use language and society's effects on language, while we talk and write the way we do. So here are those three points I mentioned at the start of this talk. I'll dive into each of these in turn and along the way, go through some concepts from sociolinguistics and some practical, sorry, and some practical tips to apply them to your work. All right, how the way you sound and the words you use might influence research participants' responses. Have you ever listened to your own voice? Like, really listen to it? Do you find the way you speak changes depending on who you're speaking to? What about the words you use? Do you do this deliberately or do you do it subconsciously? What about the words your research participants use? Have you noticed them before? 
If you haven't noticed these things yet, you will start to now. We need to be really careful with the words we use in design research and testing so we don't influence the participants' responses in any way. Let's dive into why that is. I was once conducting usability testing with a participant on the SEEK website. The participant referred to the job category section, that bit where you choose what industry you think your job title fits in, as the clarifications. It's reasonable to assume due to the context that he meant classifications, but perhaps he misplaced the word due to some nerves or simply couldn't remember the right word. I didn't say anything and the session continued on. So what was I doing here but not saying anything? Let's look at some concepts. Prescriptivism is the view that one variety of language has a higher value than the other varieties, and this variety should be imposed on everyone. And this is seen a lot with regard to grammar, spelling, vocab, and pronunciation. That example I gave before, what does that have to do with prescriptivism? I didn't correct the participant, ask what he meant, or repeat the word back at him, which is a favoured trick of many researchers. Instead, I inferred from the context and his actions what he was talking about. Asking what he meant or repeating the word back at him might have made him realise his mistake. I would have risked, therefore, making him feel embarrassed and I might have jeopardised the rest of the session. He might have tried harder to make up for his mistake, which would also bias the data. If I had asked what he meant or repeated the word back, this would be prescriptivist. In my head, I'm thinking, oh, he clearly means classifications. I better ask just in case. I'm telling him in a roundabout way that what he said and the way he talks is wrong. It's a linguist's duty to describe what is being said or written and to avoid judgment. And the same is true of design researchers. We describe exactly what's being said and done with no editing, even though sometimes it might be quote unquote wrong. There's no right or wrong variety of language. All of them are valid. That doesn't mean it's okay to use ableist or sexist language, for example, what I'm saying here is that there's no right or wrong variety of language to speak. A friend of mine who has a PhD in chemical engineering was once getting a bit tongue-tied and struggling with his words. Naturally, the rest of us were teasing him about it, to which he snarkily replied, I language good, and he was also the inspiration for this talk's title. What he's done here is just take a noun, language, and turn it into a verb by sticking an A-T-E ending on the end of it. It's not correct, but we understood him fine. So what, you, uh, so what can you do to mitigate this? You can encourage note-taking as a stream of consciousness activity. Capture exactly what is being said as much as you possibly can without editing. You can use the context of what's being said to infer what's going on. This also saves the participant's face and makes them feel really comfortable. Prescriptivism is fun, but descriptivism is funner. Let's move on to talk about registers and jargon. And I realise the irony in this, I'm using a bit of jargon in this talk, but I hope I'm explaining it okay. A register is a variety of language that's determined by the things you're talking about. For example, the phrases contextual inquiry and usability may tell us we're dealing with a register that relates to design research. A funny example of this is legal ease, you know, the stuff in terms and conditions that no one ever reads. Really technical words that we find in different registers are called jargon. In our field, we might casually refer to things like platform, concept, design, prototype, feature, and product. We might call these things platforms, prototypes, and features, but our participants who don't work in our industry likely won't. We want to ensure our participants understand what we mean so we get honest responses and the participant doesn't feel like they have to prove themselves by matching the language we're using. So what can you do about this? You can use some word swaps. 
instead of saying platform, say website. Instead of design, say concept, because it's less final as well. Instead of saying prototype, call it a fake website or a website that doesn't fully work, or even just concept again. Instead of saying feature, just call it a thing or a thing you can use, or this bit over here. Instead of saying product, say service or things you use and do. A good rule of thumb I like to use is, does it pass the mum and dad test? Like if I went and ran a pilot research session with my mum, would she understand the things I was talking about? Okay, let's move on to talk about how our experiences and the way we speak influence the collection of research data. Now, I'd like to get a show of plus ones in the Zoom chat function. Who here identifies as male? White, that's me. Or university educated, me again. Now, here, I'm a plus two. I'm both white and university educated. Do you think that your experiences match that of your participants? Probably not. Let's look at the way we use language to express our identity, subconsciously or consciously. I'd like you to think about what assumptions you might make about someone based on the way they speak. What assumptions might they be making about you? I'm talking about accents. A good example of this, funnily enough, is the TV show Family Guy. Lois comes from a well-to-do family. How do you, as the viewer, know this? She doesn't pronounce her R's. This is a common feature in what's called mid-Atlantic American accents. It's typically how well-to-do people speak in the northeastern US. Peter, her husband, does pronounce his R's. So the creators of Family Guy are suggesting to us that Lois comes from a more affluent background than Peter because of how we interpret their accents. This pops up in Australian media too. Now, these perceptions are just that perceptions. Our society chooses to place these values on the different ways people speak. So how do you work with this as a researcher? So a major function of language is expressing personal identity. By choosing to speak a certain way, you can convey to the person listening who you are or who you want to be. Right now, the accent I'm using to speak to you all is probably a little more Melbourneian sounding than the one I'd subconsciously use to speak with my regional Victorian parents or my cousins. I don't want my family thinking I'm some snobby city slicker, so my accent changes when I speak with them. It sounds more Australian. And the one I'm using to speak to you right now is probably a little more nervous sounding than what it would ordinarily be. When I speak with my researcher colleague at SEEK, who is in Kuala Lumpur, I try to avoid using too much Australian slang. I might avoid saying, let's chuck this in OneDrive, for example. Similarly, my colleague used to avoid using the Malaysian English term la, at the end of her sentences, until we got to know each other better. In this way, we're both adapting to each other's way of speaking. So we know language helps us express identity, and we also know that we may change the way we use language to be perceived a certain way. Changing our language use according to the social context is known as situational code switching. The kind of language you end up using when you code switch is called a style. You can use this to meet your research participant where they are without mockery or mimicry. Become aware of how you sound and the words you use. See what you can do to adapt this. Depending on who my participant is, I might start to broaden my vowels ever so slightly. Maybe I start to use more of the words they use to describe things, and I think Indy mentioned the same thing earlier. I mirror the way they pronounce things just a little bit to break down those assumptions and establish some trust. Once I get a feel for who the person is, I can adapt my language to suit them. Tap into your own experiences to find some common ground here. And this is a really tricky balance to strike. You don't want to become another person entirely. 
all you're doing is meeting the participant where they are. I also try to notice if the participant is code switching. Has their language or accent changed in the time I've been talking to them? And I think about why that might be. If you notice this, think about how you can make that person feel more at ease so you get to see their authentic self. I want to point out too, Macquarie University has a great resource on the different ways Australians speak, if you want to go check that out. Aside from communicating ideas, we also use language to establish a relationship with other people. It can be as simple as saying morning to someone you pass on the street, or in Japanese, saying itadakimasu before you eat. Neither of those things convey ideas, but they serve to unite us over a, co a common experience, which builds rapport. And this is called phatic communication. At the start of your research session, you might ask the participant how their day was or joke about needing another coffee. And I do this a lot. You might even resort to commenting on the weather. You're using these things to establish a bit of rapport with your participant before you've even commenced the session. Sometimes we run the risk of taking these things a bit too far. What you want to avoid doing here is stereotyping. In a linguistic context, stereotyping involves contrasting two cultures or groups on the basis of one dimension and focusing on that as a problem for communication. It can limit our understanding of human behaviour and can lead to miscommunication and misguided assumptions. In your research sessions, focus very much on the individual who is your research participant. You, as the researcher, should be responding to them. And that brings us to status and contextual identity. Status is the position a person holds in the social structure of a community or space. Contextual identity refers to how a person's language aligns with the context in which it's used. As the researcher, you're more likely expected to behave and speak in a certain way by the participant. And there's a power dynamic at play here. The setting of the research session is also pretty artificial. Think about who you are in the research space. Who has the power here? If you need to, give your participant the power through lowering your status. Of course, that depends on how elite you think you are in comparison. When a participant comes into a room by default of you being a researcher, there might be a power dynamic in which they feel they have to impress you. Adapt that so you're on a more similar level. Be really deliberate about the words you use and the way you sound. Try to fit in with your participant's world. Don't make them feel as if they have to fit in with yours. You can use a little humour or self-deprecation to lower your status. Make a few jokes here and there if your participant is responsive to that. Okay. Oops. Sorry. So last thing I'm going to talk about is how we as a design research community talk about what we do and how we might exclude others through the language we use. So let's look inward for a moment. Have you ever sat in a presentation and thought to yourself, what is this person talking about? Maybe they're using a bunch of words you're not sure of the meaning of and it's going over your head. I remember one time at work I was chatting with a colleague and they mentioned something being fungible in casual conversation and I was like, what? I'm going to show you a paragraph of someone talking about design research and some different scenarios. Think about what's a reasonable scenario for this conversation to appear in and maybe what's not so reasonable. Last month, I conducted an exploratory research study. The study comprised 20 contextual inquiry sessions, which are a form of ethnography typically used in anthropological studies at the tertiary education research level. Participant ephemera was collected in situ to ensure validity and robustness. Now, is this reasonable in the context of two design researchers chatting over a coffee? A design researcher explaining their methodology to a general manager of product? Or me telling my data analyst partner what I got up to at work yesterday? 
maybe it's applicable to those two design researchers if they're big fans of jargon. It might be appropriate when talking to a bunch of seasoned design researchers, but it's not really appropriate anywhere else. Here's another example. My PhD friend's partner, the Langweight person, often talks to her about his work. I asked her how she responds to this. Sorry, that should say my PhD friend often talks to his partner about his work. And she said, well, he'll just start rattling off a bunch of terms specific to his work that I don't know. And it doesn't click for him that I don't know them. I find it really hard to know what he means. I don't remember what he says because I have no concept of these things. It doesn't have a conceptual grounding for me, so they're just meaningless words. Does that sound familiar? I want to talk about in-groups and out-groups. In social psychology, an in-group is a social group to which people identify as being a member. The in-group classifies those who are not in that group negatively. This is the out-group. It's a kind of us versus them mentality. In social linguistics, in-group members impose their dominant way of thinking and speaking on the out-group to advantage themselves and enforce the way things currently are. The out-group are then made to believe that they're somehow inferior. Have you ever been in a situation where a lot of complex words were used that you didn't understand? Or maybe people were judging you for the way you spoke. How did that make you feel? What you felt here was probably exclusion. The in-group might have been using a number of complex words or jargon specific to the subject matter that they were talking about. You, as the outsider, weren't given a way in through them explaining things to you or them using language that you could understand or that everyone understands. Maybe you were made to feel inferior because you didn't understand something. In some cases, the use of jargon is the result of our privilege. Perhaps you've been guilty of this. I know I have. Ask yourself, what are you trying to prove by using complex words? Or if you're feeling cheeky, ask the other person what they're trying to prove. We've all been the banana at some point in our lives. Okay, so what? What has this got to do with research? In our research sessions with participants, we can sometimes make them feel excluded if we use words that are too complex or don't explain concepts or ideas in a way that's easily understood. We use language to exclude, consciously or subconsciously, all of the time. We use it to make ourselves feel good and to make others feel bad. When discussing your research plans with stakeholders, you need to use just enough technical language to show that design research is a legit skill that requires training, but also you need to explain what your technical language means so your stakeholders come away feeling as though they've learned something and that they're on equal footing to you. The best design researchers aren't the ones who use all the jargon and sound super smart in meetings. They're the ones who are able to make technical concepts easy for anyone to understand. And this helps people to remember what you're talking about and gets you buy-in. Okay. Thanks for coming on that sociolinguistic journey with me today. I want to wrap up what we learned. We talked about prescriptivism and capturing exactly what the participant says and avoiding judging how they use language. We talked about registers and jargon and, assuring, and ensuring we avoid using these in our research sessions. Use word swaps to avoid overly technical language. We talked about expressing identity and what we can do to fit into our participants' worlds. Use code switching to reflect the words your participant is using. Treat every individual as unique. And you won't get the stuff 100% right all of the time. We're humans and we make mistakes. The best thing you can do is become aware of these things and strive to do something about them. Uh, no Persons in Ireland, I want to give my thanks to Dr. Cameron Hunt, who Langweight's good, my friend Dr. Nathan Eva, my colleagues Dania and Hamaxi. And if you're keen to learn more, these are the resources I use for this talk. And this is a fun one called sillylinguistics.com, which as the name suggests, makes linguistics a little bit silly. Thanks everyone. Thanks, Kaylee.